Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Dan Berkman. In this edition of the Vice Presidential Podcast, we talk about Vice President Henry Wilson, a man who overcame Dickensian-level poverty to form the Union Army, led the fight to outlaw slavery, almost impeached a president, and founded a national political party which is still active today. Not bad for a guy not even using his real name. President's mansion, such as it was at the time, was quite a long ways away from the small working-class town of Farmington, New Hampshire, where Henry Wilson was born. Although he was not called Henry Wilson quite yet. Instead, he was born Jeremiah Jones Colbeth on February 16, 1812. Jeremiah entered the world at a very difficult time not only for his family, but for the nation as a whole. Not only had another war started against England, which many commentators didn't even think that they could survive, but the country found itself in a rather epic depression. A few years earlier in 1809, then-President Jefferson passed one of the most controversial laws of the age with the Embargo Act. Essentially, Jefferson willingly blocked all trade with Europe. The reasons were many, but essentially it was to stop England and France from fighting which pretty much anyone that knows history, the entire world has been trying to do since the creation of these two countries. And it's never worked once. So I don't know why Jefferson thought he could be the one person to do it. What the law did accomplish was a depression that moved quickly from American shipping ports out to the rural areas, like Farmington, New Hampshire. What did this mean for the Colbeths? It meant that work was increasingly difficult to come by, and if it could be found, was for considerably low wages. Many families, the Colbus included, existed in a state of feudalism, forced to work the property they lived on for landlords to pay the monthly rent. The patriarch of the family, Winthrop, was a former military veteran that worked as a day laborer. His neighbors would describe him as a bit of a get-rich-quick schemer kind of guy. In fact, he was said to have named his son, Jeremiah, after a childless bachelor who lived in the area, who Winthrop worked for on occasion. It was a rather feeble attempt to curry favor with the man and his money, which, as you might expect, did not end up working out so well. Although suffering from crippling poverty and near starvation, education was important to the Colbeths, so they scrimped and saved so that the young Jeremiah could attend the public or common school. There, Jeremiah learned to read, write, and do some basic mathematics. Due to worsening conditions at home, Jeremiah was forced to abandon school at age 10 and join his father as an indentured servant on a nearby farm. He spent the next decade tilling the fields in the hot sun or cutting down trees in the cold winters from daybreak till nightfall, six days a week. Jeremiah, the boy who had so much against him, got one big break in his life. A woman said hi to him once. One day, the wife of Nehemiah Eastman, who was a member of the United States House of Representatives, saw Jeremiah walking past their home. Being a charitable type, 
Miss Eastman called Jeremiah over and gave him some clothing her children had grown out of and no longer needed. Before letting Jeremiah leave, she asked if he knew how to read, which, of course, he did. She then gave him a book and said if he could read it all the way through, he could keep it. Jeremiah returned a week later with the book read. The surprise Miss Eastman gave the young lad more books to further his education, and by candlelight at the family's kitchen table, Jeremiah learned about the world. Politics, mathematics, philosophy, history. Nothing was outside of his passion for learning. Many others in the community, such as pastors, took note of the plucky young boy who loved to read, and soon charity groups provide him with even more books. Jeremiah always prided himself by working as hard in the fields as he did at study. In 1832, upon reaching the end of his service at age 20, Jeremiah was given six sheep and two oxen as final payment, which he promptly sold for the kingly ransom of $84. Jeremiah took that money and had his name legally changed to Henry Wilson, No one's quite sure on the reasoning for the name change, but we do, however, have a good idea on why he picked the name he did. The inspiration was said to have come from either a biography of a Philadelphia teacher or a portrait of an English clergyman, which he first saw in one of the books the Eastmans provided him all those years ago. The newly minted Henry Wilson hit the road looking for work. He went to a number of towns and found jobs hard to come by, and those that he could find paid almost nothing. He never forgot that feeling of desperation and loneliness while he was looking for work. Henry then decided to leave New Hampshire and moved to Natick in Massachusetts. He had heard that the shoemaking business was booming and he wanted to get in on the action. It seems that he was his father's son, at least a little bit. While there, Wilson became an apprentice to a shoemaker, but with such a quick study, or so broke, take your pick, that after only seven weeks, he left his master and founded his own shop. Although it started off as a possible desperation play to save up money for law school, Wilson's talent for shoemaking became quite legendary among the Natick townsfolks, leading to rumors that he could make a hundred pairs of shoes without sleeping. Word of Wilson's success as a shoemaker and his humble origins followed him through his future political career and earned him the nickname the Natick Cobbler. As a result of his fabled work ethic, Wilson wound up quite ill and was advised to take a break from work by his doctor. That bit of advice would change his whole life, and many would argue, myself included, the course of United States history altogether. While on sabbatical in Washington, D.C., Wilson sat in on congressional debates. He was always interested in the law and orders, so why not take in the show while you're there? By chance or fate, the session Wilson attended concerned slavery and abolitionism. Of all those Wilson heard speak, one caught his attention due to his fiery rhetoric. The man was Thomas Morris, a senator from Ohio, who was zealous in his opposition to slavery. Following the close of the day's session, Wilson approached Morris and asked him where his passion came from, and he was said to have replied, let me take you to it. Morris escorted the young Wilson to the slave pen set up on the corner of 7th and B Street. For those unfamiliar with Washington, D.C., this would put them near the National Mall. Here, Wilson saw firsthand the brutal whippings, families being split up, and human beings placed in cages. 
Wilson was disgusted and sought to end what he called the greatest hypocrisy of the government. Wilson vowed upon his return to Massachusetts to work all the days of his life to end slavery. Wilson said later, I left the capital of my country with the unalterable resolution to give all that I had and hope to have a power to the cause of emancipation. To move forward with this promise, Wilson put himself back in school, which reduced him to near poverty status. With his last $12, he started yet another shoemaking company, and this time found even greater success. Now with some money and a growing reputation among Massachusetts business owners, he was ready to get into politics, because that's how you make a difference, and that's how you stop slavery. However, to be successful in this new endeavor, Wilson realized he needed more than money and a somewhat refurbished reputation could provide. Wilson was inspired by the great orders and lawyers of his day. This was the time of Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, and the great Daniel Webster, who he later supported for the presidency, by the way. Politics was then, and still is today, the art of debate, something which Wilson sorely lacked. As he had done all of his life, whether it was weeding, farming, or shoemaking, Wilson knew only one speed, and gave that same energy to learn how to debate. To hone his craft, he joined the Natick Debating Society, which had recently just been created. Here, Wilson learned to turn his wide variety of knowledge and passion into practical arguments that could be valid on a Senate floor. Henry Wilson eventually allied himself with the Whig Party due to his friends and debate colleagues joining rather early on. Before you ask, no, it wasn't like a toga party except you wore powdered wigs. Although, not a bad idea. What the name actually referred to was the wigs worn by our founding fathers, and was chosen for its representation of fighting kingly tyranny wherever it appeared. And who was the most tyrannical person at that time? No one other than Andrew Jackson. Man, did they hate him. And man, do I agree with him on that point. The Whigs considered themselves liberal, forward-thinking, favored the strength of the Congress over the president, and went for overall social and political modernization. Although the Whigs were considered the party of the will to do aristocrats, Wilson was drawn to them because their ideals matched his own, at least for the moment. The party liked Wilson because he helped them connect to the poor working man that could secure them further votes. The political association benefited both Wilson and the Whigs a great deal, and Wilson was able to secure election to the Massachusetts House of Representatives in 1841. After that, Wilson moved in and out of the Massachusetts State Senate House from 1844 through 1852, even becoming the president pro tem at one point. An example of the kind of man Wilson was, even this early in his career, he organized a petition of 65,000 names to block the annexation of Texas because it would expand slavery. Eventually, Wilson lost faith with the Whigs as their ideals clashed with his, especially when it came to slavery, Wilson's favorite issue. Essentially, the Whigs compromised too much for Wilson's liking. They allowed slave states to enter the Union and even picked Zachary Taylor, a slave owner, as their presidential candidate. In response, Wilson said at his own party's convention that if Taylor was nominated, he would not vote for him, and he would also actively work against him. To that effort, Wilson united with fellow anti-slavery Whigs and rival Democrats to form the Free Soil Party in 1848. 
Their major platform was preventing the expansion of slavery into new states with a larger goal of outlawing the practice altogether. The party ran two candidates in its existence, Martin Van Buren in 1848 and John P. Hale, senator from Wilson's home state of New Hampshire, in the 1852 presidential election, but came up far short, securing only 5% of the vote both times. Feeling that the party was fractured and poorly organized, it was restructured by Wilson and his colleagues and renamed the Republican Party in 1854. Now, before you ask, yes, I mean that Republican Party, that's what Wilson started. I know, I know, surprise, surprise. As you would no doubt figure now, The Republican Party at its founding was very different ideologically than the one we know today. The party's populist message quickly dominated the northern states and continued its mission of emancipation for African Americans, breaking up large plantations, redistributing land and wealth, and assisting the poor worker, regardless of their race. Hmm, that rings a bell. When did Democrats and Republicans simply flip-flop politically? Well, That's a story for a different podcast altogether. Wilson ran on the Republicans' first ever slate of tickets and was elected to the Senate from 1855 through 1873, representing Massachusetts. The seat may have gone to Wilson, but he never used it because he spent every waking moment standing to decry slavery and working to banish it forever. In the first speech he gave to the Senate, Wilson attacked slavery and the slave owners and attendants directly. He recounted his first experience with the slave markets he had seen in his younger years and was appalled that they were still open, just down the street. He called it a blight on the city built to represent liberty. His speeches on the subject, which thankfully we still have, are incredibly moving and his passion just explodes off the page. I highly recommend you to go check them out. In the span of only two years, Wilson's fiery speeches got him challenged to two duels by rival party members due to his comments on the slavery issue. Taking the high road, Wilson never fought one of them, but if push came to shove, I certainly think he would have pulled the trigger. By 1861, Henry Wilson had accomplished a great deal. He started a successful shoemaking company, became a state senator, and was the founder of a political party. However, all Wilson had done up to this point only made him exceptional. But the Civil War, well, that would make him great. In the first year of the war, Wilson helps form the Union Army, raise the militia, accomplish a life goal by pretty much outlawing slavery, at least in one area anyway. So yeah, he kind of had his hands full. So let's take this point by point, since there's certainly a lot to cover here. As we learned earlier, Wilson was just a bit of an avid reader. He loved the military campaigns of Napoleon, Washington, Wellington, Julius Caesar, and others, although he abhorred actual battle. However, when the cause was just, fighting could be made acceptable to him. More than a decade earlier, back in Massachusetts, Wilson had been elected to be the major of an artillery regiment, even without requesting the post. Wilson actually came to like it, and even ended up leading a militia regiment. Ever the student, Wilson spent countless sleepless nights in libraries and speaking with generals to learn the finer points of military strategy. This would certainly come in handy, because Wilson became the chairman of the Committee on Military Affairs in 1861, the opening year of the Civil War. We know this 
committee today by its more formal name, the House Armed Services Committee. The job might be a challenge today, but during the Civil War, it was near impossible. It required Wilson to completely finance, build, equip, and supply the construction of the Union Army and Navy virtually from scratch in a country and a Senate split in two by war. Wilson performed this task with a focus on the man serving in the field and ensured him better benefits than have ever been offered before. For Wilson, the long hours meant nothing because this is what he wanted to do all his life. The opportunity to put slavery at an end, even if the country, including those in his own party, may not have completely agreed with him on that point or willing to go as far as he did. On the short congressional summer break of 1861, Wilson went back to Natick, where he put together and supplied a 2,000-plus men militia in 40 days. The group was called the 22nd Regiment Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. Following their formation, Wilson led the unit into battle for two months before returning back to Washington, only leaving the post because, you know, he had a whole army to run. As a bit of an aside, the 22nd stayed active for many years and was present at some of the war's largest battles, Bull Run, Gettysburg, Antietam, just to name but a few. In December of 1861, Wilson introduced a bill to outlaw slavery in Washington, D.C., something which had been a dream of his for about 25 years and got his political career started in the first place. Despite some fierce debate, President Lincoln signed it into law in April of 1862. Wilson spent the rest of the war on a variety of different bills associated with African Americans, such as granting them the ability to serve in the army, securing them equal pay and benefits to white soldiers, getting an elementary school built for the sons and daughters of former slaves, and much, much more, all the while supplying both the Union Army and Navy. Henry Wilson had an incredibly rewarding experience, and no one could have been happier when the war ended and all Americans were free. In addition to all this, Wilson took great pains to remind the Senate of the suffering of the Union troops and saw that their needs were met by a divided Senate. This tireless support earned Wilson the nickname the Soldier's Friend, which he kept all the days of his life. As you would expect from someone so intimately involved in the Union war effort, Wilson dealt with and advised President Lincoln rather often. Wilson's relationship with Lincoln was a rather complex one. As a man, Wilson found Lincoln to be loving, tender, firm, and just. But despite that, the pair had their issues. For starters, Wilson felt that Lincoln was not earnest, strong, or radical enough to make the difficult choices that needed making. Both were ardent abolitionists for years, but Wilson felt as if Lincoln was stopping himself from doing what he knew in his own heart was right, abolishing slavery regardless of the consequences. Sure, the political pressure was immense, but for Wilson, the right thing was the right thing, no matter if people were too blind to see it. In August of 1862, Wilson visited his friend Lincoln, and the pair spent a long, tense evening discussing the facts of the Emancipation Proclamation and what both held most dear. Man, would I have loved to have been in that room. The final result of this debate we, of course, all know now, but at the time it was anything but a foregone conclusion. Lincoln said later about the Emancipation Proclamation, I do not know what the result may be. We may be defeated. We may fail. 
but we will go down with our principles. I will not modify, qualify, nor retract my proclamation. Sounds like classic Wilson to me. Sacrifice and personal suffering mean nothing if it is for the right and just cause. Despite Lincoln coming around to his way of thinking, Wilson was working to gather support behind more radical candidates to defeat Lincoln in the 1864 election and hoped deep down that his friend would just drop out. At the close of the Civil War, Secretary of War Simon Cameron commented that no man, in my opinion, in the whole country has done more to aid the War Department in preparing the mighty Union Army, now under arms, than Henry Wilson. Winfred Scott, the commanding general of the armed forces since 1841, had this to say about Wilson. Wilson has done more work than all the chairmen of the military committees have done in the last 20 years. Not bad for a poor shoemaker from New Hampshire who is not even using his birth name. During the Reconstruction Era, a.k.a. 1865 onwards, Wilson found himself as the leader of yet another war, this time against then-President Andrew Johnson, who came into office after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Wilson had hoped that Johnson, who served in the Union Army, by the way, would be harder on Southerners and their returning senators, but instead, he was found to be quite the opposite. When the Congress reconvened in December 1865, the country could have stood for some calm and normal debates to help relations normalize. Wilson and the other radical Republicans, of course, would have none of it and wanted to stop Southerners from even sitting. Wilson then went right for the jugular by proposing a bill to make black codes and other lingering racist policies in the South illegal. President Johnson showed sympathies for former Confederates as he vetoed bills such as the establishment of the Freedmen's Bureau and a civil rights bill that concerned African Americans. This proved to be the last straw, as Wilson called for impeachment proceedings to be called against Johnson. According to Wilson, Johnson was unworthy and was deliberately blocking the Congress and thusly the people's will. Wilson led the charge, but they ended up just one vote shy of the two-thirds majority required to impeach. Jeez, that must have been a rough night. During the presidential election season of 1868, Wilson toured the South and gave speeches. The crux of many of them was for African Americans and former Confederates to try to find a way to live in peace. Wilson said in one of these speeches, I do not want to see a white man's party, nor do I want to see a black man's party. I warn you tonight, as I do black men of this country everywhere, to remember this, that while a black man is as good as a white man, a white man is as good as a black man. See to it while you're striving to lift yourselves up that you do not strive to pull anybody else down. Despite many assuming he was running for the presidency himself, Wilson instead wanted to get on the ticket with Ulysses S. Grant as his vice president. This effort eventually failed. When Grant won the election, he asked Wilson to serve as his secretary of war, which he declined so that he could spend time with his family and on his growing slate of work that needed doing in the Senate. In between election seasons, Wilson played yet another role in a historic event. In 1870, Hiram Revels was elected to the Senate. This was news because Revels would be the first ever African American to join. As you would expect, many Democrats refused to have him seated due to the color of his skin. 
Wilson attempted to rectify issues by writing a speech appealing to the Democrats' Christian values. And when that failed, he appeared in person to walk Revels to his seat and sat beside him for the whole day. Wilson continued to speak out on behalf of his favorite causes, civil rights for freedmen, voting rights for women, federal aid to education, federal regulation of businesses, protection of women's rights, and prohibition of liquor. Wilson just had to spoil it with that last one, didn't he? I really like the guy. Maybe I should just stop doing this episode because I don't know if I can defend him anymore. In the election of 1872, Grant was looking for a new vice president. It seems that the previous one, Scheuer Colfax, got himself caught up in the Credit Mobile scandal and took himself out of the running. The Republican Party loved the concept of a Grant-Wilson ticket as the ads simply wrote themselves. Wilson, the Natick cobbler, and Grant, the Galilina tanner. You see, one of Grant's many, many failed careers was working in a leather goods store in Galilina, Illinois. Hence the nickname. This was a ticket for the everyman that was led by two individuals that had lifted themselves up by their bootstraps and into national prominence. Grant and Wilson were opposed by none other than Horace Greeley, a liberal Republican endorsed by the Democrats. Before the electoral votes could be counted, Horace Greeley died, and the Grant-Wilson ticket carried 31 of the then 37 states. In 1873, in Wilson's first year as the vice president, he spent his days with the frivolous nature of the ceremonial office and his nights working on his epic three-volume work called The History of the Rise and Fall of Slave Power in America. This rather crazed schedule affected Wilson's health, and he began to suffer strokes. Wilson would hover between illness and recovery for the next year and a half or so. During that time, Wilson returned to the farm in which he had lived in in Farmington, New Hampshire, all those years ago. The boy with tattered clothes who loved to read became an American senator, the founder of a major political party, an officer in the Union Army, and a vice president. Wilson returned to Washington, working in the Senate, and on what is assumed to be a presidential campaign, till he died on November 22, 1875, in his office at the Capitol. Upon his death, Wilson was remembered by flags flown at half-mast around the country, badges worn by government officials for 30 days, and the Senate chamber was said to have been draped in black. Words of praise came flowing from President Grant, fellow senators, friends, and celebrities of the era. Wilson's body was laid out in state in the rotunda at the Capitol and was visited by thousands. Truly a remarkable send-off for a man and a life that deserved all the trappings of a grateful nation. I knew very little about Henry Wilson before digging into his background in an attempt to get an understanding of who he really was. After spending a couple of weeks with Henry Wilson, I have to say, I really admire the guy. Not only for his amazing rags-to-riches story or his ability to call out his own political party when they failed their founding ideals, but for the sheer amount of work he did for the abolitionist movement. Obviously, Wilson was not the only one of his kind, and he'd probably be the first to tell you so. But the amount of blood, sweat, and tears he put in is truly inspiring. The dedication of seeing an injustice and fighting against it every day of your life is truly admirable. Wilson was outspoken and not as politically astute as others, 
But his concerns and worries were never his own, but rather lived with the poor and disenfranchised getting their fair shake. To paraphrase and add my own spice to the anonymous author of Wilson's official senatorial bio, Wilson left to his grateful countrymen the memory of honorable public service and proved that a good name is far better and should echo far longer than riches ever could. I'm not sure how you felt about this episode, but I'm glad to have done it. Outside of a scant few paragraphs online and a book written in 1875, which thankfully I was able to track down and read, thank you very much, archive.org, for making this episode possible, there's no mention or discussion about Henry Wilson out there, really. In my own humble way, I'm happy to spread the word about one of America's greatest unsung heroes and help him retain the recognition he so richly deserves. In times of so much hatred and discrimination, the world could use more than a few people who follow Henry Wilson's example. And with that, I think it's time to wrap this one up. As always, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedules to give my podcast a listen. I look forward to sharing more stories with you, whether they be funny, inspiring, insightful, or all three. If you have comments about the show, questions about Henry Wilson, or other vice presidents, shoot me an email over at vppodcast at gmail.com. Till next time, I've been Dan Berkman. This has been the Vice Podidential Podcast, and you have been a great audience. Good night, everybody.